Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In love with himself. Look at the look on his face. He's mesmerized by himself. Now I'll grant you, the narcissist Lex Luger is put together like no man I've ever seen. Smug, confident, secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demon? Surge through the corridors of the crazed mind. Come with me into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. Dr. Fine Toothcomb. Recently, a menace has reared its ugly head in this country. No, not communism, but this threat might be even worse. This here is Johnny. He seems like a normal young man. He looks straighter than the pleats in his slacks. There's something about Johnny that most people don't see. You see, Johnny was sick, and not even a diet of fortified cereals and rich red meat could cure it. For you see, Johnny was a narcissist. Everything about Johnny was fake. Johnny had no feelings for his fellow man. There at the sock hop social, he spots his next prey. Poor Doris sitting alone. What's a swell dame like you sitting alone for? Light your cigarette? He's handsome, charming, and has hair that would make cookie jealous. I think I'm in love. Like that wonderful cigarette she was smoking, Johnny was smooth. But unlike her cigarette, being involved with Johnny wasn't helpful. 
Johnny would exploit her as he did with all others, without any guilt or shame. Johnny, I'm pregnant. What's your name again? What? Oh, how could you? <laughs> Poor Doris. She was no good no more. You see, this is how Johnny saw people. That's right, mere cattle. When he wasn't stalking his next victim, he gazed at himself lovingly in the mirror, like some sort of Italian. Wow, look at me, I'm just the tip of the rhino horn. Johnny didn't seek gainful employment, but instead accrued finances by various forms of rookery. I don't know, Johnny. If I lose this money, I'll get in Dutch with the wife. Don't worry about it. You won't get in Dutch. It's totally Jake. What are you, Nancy? What's this stuff called again? It's called cryptocurrency. But engaging in this anachronistic flimflam was the last straw for Johnny, when his head got the losing end of a spade shovel by Marvin. I'll give you a blockchain. Even in his final moments, any kind of self-awareness wouldn't impede Johnny's diseased mind. What was everybody's problem? I was the ginchiest. Oh, my poor Johnny. There, there. Don't weep for Johnny, for he wouldn't do the same for you. What was wrong with him, Doctor? Well, you see, Johnny had narcissistic personality disorder. It comes with a sense of self-importance, preoccupation with power, beauty, or success, entitlement, arrogance, and most importantly, lacks any empathy whatsoever. But what about you? If you come in contact with a narcissist, do not engage with them. Tell your local authorities or your clergymen. Or hit them in the back of the head with a spade shovel. Good night. Hey folks, Frank here. This educational short actually wasn't real uh, because narcissistic personality disorder is something we're just starting to come to understand in our society. It's been a big talking point of late. I, I love myself watching uh, YouTubers. YouTubers have kind of made it a sport in outing and and tearing these kind of people down, which I appreciate. Ooh, the whole Mama Max thing. Ooh, Sneeko. I watch a lot of YouTube. I'm really big into YouTube drama. Anywho. This interview came about from New York Comic Con. I think I think I say as much in the interview proper. So anyway, I was supposed to go see. I had a choice one day. It was either go to a Q&A for the MonsterVerse Godzilla show, whatever it is on Apple. Now, you know, I love Godzilla. I don't really give half a shit about American Godzilla or a Buffy roundtable Q&A with cast and crew. Now, I love Buffy and I love me some audio dramas. Hey, I'm going to go take that. So me and John, because I snuck John in. So the first person I met out of the crew is Juliet Landau. Uh, I, of course, had to bring up how I'm a huge fan of Ed Wood. We got to talking. She gave me a pass for a screening for her new film. Didn't know what to expect, but she was so nice and fun to talk to that. I was like, you know what? This is going to be worth my time. Wasn't sure what to expect about from the film, but boy, was I more than pleasantly surprised. Incredibly personal, incredibly dark. So my favorite kind of films are when the filmmakers let the audience members play in the filmmaker's mind. That's why all that jazz is my probably my favorite movie of all time. Eight and a half. I'm a big nerd like that. I really love this film and getting to to talk to Juliet and her husband, Deverell Weeks, who also is joining us today. 
was such a treat and getting to talk to them and watch them interact with fans and really talk about their personal struggles with dealing with narcissistic people in their lives is really amazing. I really can't recommend enough seeking this film out. It is available on most streaming platforms, Tubi in particular. It's on Apple Play, Google, you know, iTunes. But Tubi, which is, of course, the best streaming service, that's not even a question. So I, if, uh, but if I were you, I would seek out the two-disc Blu-ray with tons of stuff. It gives you all the sauce that goes along with it. Because the film is good on its own, but as an experience and as a multimedia thing, it works so much better. Uh, enough of my bullshit. Please enjoy this interview. I usually make these monologues longer, but I spent a long time making that educational short. Way longer than I thought I was going to. So, sorry. I hope you found it funny. I don't know. Enjoy. Thank you guys for coming on. Oh, my God. Thank you for I'm having so us. excited to be here. I know we've been trying to trying to do this. And I'm really yeah, we've thrilled. been trying to do this since New York Comic Con. I have to say, meeting you and Deb, it's just, I, I feel like we've known you forever. And it was just such an incredible thing to, to meet you guys there, to share the film with you, to, like, get to, to know you. It's just been wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And, and of course, the same. But uh, the funny thing is, this is like my experience. Uh, I'll tell you a funny, a funny, embarrassing thing. So you showed up at the Buffy verse, uh, the, the Slayers panel. And, and I learned something there. Somebody had to explain to me that you are Martin Landau's daughter. Oh, I did never yeah. made that connection in my head. It never clicked to me. It's like, oh, Landau. Oh, <laughs> and that was after I asked you the question about uh, Ed Wood, which was I was so embarrassed by that. And it was like such a weird emotional journey for me that night. Because I learned that information that day, and then I watched your movie, right. and it was like, wow, my perception had been flipped twice that day. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, it, it, I wouldn't expect. I don't think that's embarrassing in any way. <laughs> you know, I am a, a, an independent person, and like it isn't necessarily something that you know you need to or have to know. And obviously, the movie you know, shows a, a, a very different side than the the public persona of of my father. Absolutely. So th you said you gave out a fly for a screening and I had nothing. I actually had something that night. I was going to go to the Goosebumps. Uh, they had a uh, Goosebumps like soiree. And, and I was going to go to that. But I said, this sound, I, it was just the way you asked was just like, you know what? This is definitely more interesting than that. And it was funny when I get to the the venue you had it at and I know the guy who owns it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah which is funny. And then Deverell comes up to me and you introduce it. Uh, it was so funny meeting you, Deverell, because it was just like you come up to me and you say, oh, you said you're Juliet's husband, but I didn't hear that. I didn't hear what name you said. And I was like, oh, and I was convinced the whole conversation you would confuse me for somebody else because you were so polite and ingratiating. I'm like, he must think I'm somebody else because he's talking to me. No, like, no, no, absolutely that's just Deb. No, Juliet yeah. was very excited when, when she met you and she was excited for you to see the film. I remember talking yeah. to her after. Because the first moment it was, we were like, before we even sort of got talking about Slayers, we were doing that round table press junket and you brought up Ed Wood and I was telling you a story about meeting Quentin Tarantino. And we sort of had this, this conversation and then everybody sort of leaned in and went, oh, we should start, uh, you know, taping this. And I just felt like you and I, like, immediately, like, there was a kismet and a sort of simpatico and a connection. And, and I was like, hey, I, I think, you know, you might 
really respond to my film and tonight's the New York live premiere. And, and then it was, you know, extraordinary to get to meet Deb because obviously she personally related to the film. And so there was, you know, a, a whole other layer there as well. I said she would have to go because she, she's a big Buffy fan. And we're both big, huge Buffy fans, by the way. I kept that secret. I was just like, I didn't want to, I was like, the whole time I'm talking to you, I'm like, oh my God, it's Drusilla. Because we were both big, huge Buffy fans for like decades. I had no idea. Yeah. You seemed cool as a cucumber. Oh yeah. I was like, holy shit, that's Drusilla. Uh, by the way, the Slayers, before we get into your film proper, which I listened to, I got to say, Christopher Golden and Amber Benson did a tremendous job with that because I'm an audio drama snob and all of you guys did an amazing job. It's really, it's so beautifully produced and it's so well done and the storytelling is excellent in it. So kudos to that. Thank you so much. I actually have not heard it yet. I've been so busy working on so many different things and so I haven't had the chance yet to listen to it. Drusilla is always delicious, and it was just a, a joy to, in terms of uh, inhabiting her her skin again. Honestly, the scariest character on the show for me. I always felt that way. You can't reason with Drusilla because mm -hmm. it's just how she's feeling in the moment. You can't like she has no tells. So no, she can no. flip on a dime. Yeah, completely unpredictable. Yeah, very great character. Before we jump in, why don't you share what, what the audition process was like? You didn't audition, but when the conversation that you had about her. Uh, well, it was interesting because I I went in. And I thought it was going to be an audition. I had some pages of the character and I had this creative meeting. It was uh, Joss and David Greenwald, uh, one of the, the producers, and Gail Berman, another uh, one of the producers, Marsha Shulman, the head of casting at Fox. And we just sort of had this free-floating, associative, ping-pong-y conversation. And, and they were saying, oh, we're thinking the character should be English. And I said, oh, I, she absolutely has to be English. And I sort of went into a little bit of Drusilla in the room. And I think I wafted up and talked to the ceiling or something. And, you know, I before I even left the building, I was like making my way on the lot to the my my car. My phone rang and my agent said, uh, they booked you. And I said, wait, wait I'm still here. Are you sure? He said, yes. And I immediately went in for a meeting to hear all of the backstory of the character. And then they were going to pair me with the final choices for Spike, which they did. And then and James and I had this incredible immediate acting chemistry and the rest was it was it was a done deal for that meeting. Uh, I remember the descriptive words about Drusilla were so daunting at first because everything was completely diametrically opposed to the first adjective. For instance, it was like, she's very sweet, but she's diabolical. She's very childlike, but she's sensual. She's very ethereal, but she's earthy. She's very um A lot of contradictions, yeah. Like everything was completely uh, the opposite. And I left, and then that's what uh, you know made the character. She was rife with so many you know dimensions and contradictions, and that's what made it really fun to play. You see, like you you in your performance, you really do a great job of showing that there's a kind of a fight inside your head at all times for like thought and feelings to like like there's like f thoughts and feelings are trying to fight for supremacy at any given moment and like that mm -hmm. you really did a great like yeah it's a that's a that's a tall order for an actor so dev your background i cheated and listened to a few other interviews with you guys and you talk about your background how did you find photography i am a working class english person i don't know if a class structures play such a big thing in america but i come from a very poor background and it was sort of just a way to get out of of where I was living and get another life. And and truthfully, I really love film, but I wanted something I could do on my own. 
and or do with a smaller group of people and achieve a goal and move on. So that was really how, that's how it began. And I got a scholarship to Westminster University, film and photography. So it was a blessing. And it was in it. And, you know, and Frank, let, let's be honest, so much of careers are luck in a really weird way, aren't they? Yeah. And when I finished school, I moved out to America. I worked on a film and I did some stills photography on that. And then I assisted a lot of uh, fairly well-known photographers, Matthew Ralston, uh, Mark Seliger, people like that. When Mark Seliger was on the West Coast, I would assist on And I learned my craft there. So, And then I just moved into working on my own. You've like gotten to like the top of your field. So that's amazing. Like That's an amazing journey you've had. I, I think I've just been very lucky. And I think I work, I work very hard. I think and also... very, very talented. I always have to say, did. Frank, that my, I feel before Juliet, I was succeeding in underachieving. And then I think <laughs> and I really gave me permission to be... You know, she really helped and encouraged me emotionally and I had someone who had, I'd never been in a relationship with someone that had my back and she had my back and I felt more confident to take more risks and be more confident. Can I just say that you two are what the kids call couple goals? It's amazing to watch you two. At the screening, you did the, the most adorable thing during the Q&A where you were simultaneously praising the other while refusing to accept any <laughs> reciprocating on the other. It's just like, no, you're the best. No, no, you are. It was adorable to watch. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I feel very much the same. I mean, I think our film is about this, but I mean, I, I didn't understand what love was until I met Dev. I remember being told like, love is not predominantly a painful feeling. And that was to me eye-opening. I was like, oh, oh, really? Like it's not a kind of sick feeling and a painful feeling? No, the predominant feeling of love is nothing to do with that. But, and, and really what it is when someone is in your corner and you're in theirs and you really want one another to thrive and to evolve and to excel and how different that is and how profoundly unbelievable. And I mean, I think I always feel like I'm, I'm not religious. So it's like a non-religious miracle that with what we come from, that we were, we've been able to forge this relationship. It's yeah, completely different backgrounds and uh, like in different continents. Also about that is even though we were in such different, I mean, I actually grew up for a time in London. I lived there for four years oh. when I was a kid, but we didn't overlap while I was there. But even though we geographically were in different places for much of the time and socioeconomically in different places. And my family was in the entertainment industry. And as Dev mentioned, he was from a working class family. The thing that our movie is about narcissistic abuse and psychological abuse. And the thing about that is it's really the same. It, it, you know, there there's, comes a point with every audience that we ever talk to where people say, you know, whether it's a spouse, uh, an ex-spouse, a partner, an ex-partner, uh, a boss, a coworker, a friend, a family member or members or our world leaders. It's like we're talking about the exact same person because these traits are so much the same. So we had a very common experience in, in a lot of ways and a desire to behave differently than we were shown getting into narcissism more so in my lifetime that we're having that discussion like much more vigorously than we ever have as a culture. Like uh, I listened to your interviews on Dr. Romani 
which were amazing, by the way. If you want to hear a really good interview, check out her interview with Dr. Romani, which is where I cribbed a few of my questions from. And uh, Dr. Romani is amazing at like really codifying that behavior and making it accessible and understanding. And you've done a great job during your Q&As to really do that too, to help spread that message. Why do you think now as a culture that we're talking about it so much? Well, one thing I would say, and then Dev, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, is that it's so necessary. And we have noticed a a change in the time period from when we um, conceived of the film and made the film, you know, our whole uh, release plan was to do an extended period of interactive screening events and film festivals to build the prestige and really to build the conversation around the film and really a dialogue about the subject matter. And in the time that we've been doing that, the numbers of news articles about this and interviews about this, and Dr. Romney came on board uh, very early on and was a big champion of the film. But I I looked up the numbers um, as of yesterday, and they have tripled. Like, if you look up narcissism on Google, as of yesterday, it was 194 million Google results. And psychological abuse has... 493 million Google results. And that has, I think, almost tripled since we were initially making the movie. I'm listening to an audio book called Why Evil Exists. It's a series of lectures on every different aspect of how we have perceived evil. And it goes from early Christian to through to Muslim to Albert Camus and existentialism. It goes through everything. But this is the moment where it's almost like the scientific version of what evil is. Does that make sense? Like, it's almost like, because quantifiably to me, evil is described by narcissism. And and, and M. Scott Peck's book, People of the Lie, Mm -hmm. the first two parts of that book really capture that understanding. And I think, I think, so I think it's where where evil is an evolution of us trying to understand evil. And I think for (laughs) your question, Frank, it's also like, I do think we're living in a time where there has been an escalation in really hateful bad behavior sadly and i think that there has been an escalation in narcissism and narcissists often do very well in terms of you know we live in a capitalist society and it's sort of like in terms of it's all about me and getting ahead and i'll do anything and all of that stuff and so once people have the words to understand what it is and understand what you're dealing with it's so helpful so i think that's why there's so much of a, a, a the conversation has my, been growing. my, my pet theory is this friend it's that eventually we will realize that narcissists are not actually the same breed as human. They're different human beings. They have a different brain chemistry, and therefore they are actually different than a, a normal human being. Their, their lack of empathy is, it's literally, they are a different species. You know what the worst thing about this is? If a narcissist listens to this, they will never, ever no, understand that they're talking about them. It's like, wow, that sounds horrible. I hope you get that guy. It's like, no, you. Right. <laughs> No, no, absolutely. Yeah. There is zero self-reflection. There is no ability to self-reflect. And Deb mentioned M. Scott Peck's book, uh, Psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, and it's really a wonderful book on the study of evil. It inspired us a lot for the film and also, you know, in terms of making life-changing deci- decisions. But the thing that is amazing is he has all these case studies of his uh, patients and and some colleagues' patients that he treated And the case studies are so profound and powerful. And his definition of malignant narcissism, it's just anyone 
And truthfully, the sad thing is pretty much, I mean, that's what we found with audiences is, you know, it's very rare that someone has not experienced this. You know, people have experienced it and it is a very universal problem in terms of people with narcissistic personality disorder do not change and they do not get better. So you have to figure out what what you need to do to, to have a sort of healthy life. I'm glad we're actually, as a culture, having this discussion because dealing with a narcissist is very isolating. Like now that we have it all laid out and it's amazing how they all operate so concisely the same. Like they all operate on this. It's like they there was a book handed out that they all had to they had to memorize. Yes. And it's great because it's like when you're dealing with that kind of personality, you don't understand like if you don't have like the 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 understanding of what you're dealing with, it could really like take like isolate you from everybody else. Like I'm glad that's why as a culture we're all talking about it. Absolutely. It's one of the things that our viewers have been saying is like, oh like so many people said, oh my God, like my life clicked. Like I understood what's been going on. And once you can see it. You also then can stay clear of it when it starts to present itself. I, 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 you know, I, I don't feel like to jump in there though for a sec because madness is not madness when you're living it. Mm-hmm. It's just what you're living, right? You're in madness. Right. But I have to tell you, okay, I, I just want to be as honest as I can be, right? I don't want to hold things back, or maybe this will speak to someone. But my father was an incredibly unpleasant human being, and was a narcissist and a low end con man. And what really helped me was, as much as me seeing it, was that Juliet vindicated my point of view. When she would say, I would continue to say, oh, he's such a nice man. And so having a witness, like the thing of yeah, not yeah, being And involved. her going, I'm not sure he's so nice. And I'm like, oh, you think that too? Like, am I the other? For instance, Frank, when my grandmother died and we buried her, my father wanted me to give him a percentage of her burial with, in a check. And I'd always realised I could never give him a check because it changed the dollar amount to amount that he wanted and then just keep the money. And Juliet was... And he'd already stolen it. He'd stolen a house. He'd stolen a bunch of money already. But you called that, right? You, you were like, that's not right. And I, you know what I mean? That's like the madness of like, yeah, I just don't do that. Why am I going to give him a check? Because he's only going to change the numbers. And it's like, yeah, there's actually something wrong with the family member doing that to another family member. Well, that- and I use that thing of having the witness and being like, oh, you're not you're not alone in your perception because you are your gaslit. So you, you always think, especially growing up, you're like, Oh, it must, it's me. I'm the one, right. I'm the one who's confused. I'm a mess. It's all me. That's what happens as a byproduct. So with Dev, it was, I remember that the moment that we were, we were actually walking and I'd met his dad and, and Dev was telling me one horrendous, I mean, not even like, okay, like horrendous story after the next. And every time after the horrendous story, he would say, but he's so sweet. And then he'd tell me another horrendous story and he'd say, but he's so sweet. And then there was a point where I stopped walking and I said, um, you know, I haven't heard anything that sounds remotely sweet. Is there a story you can think of that's sweet? Because you're describing as sweet all the time. Like, can you think of a story to share that's sweet? And you got really quiet and you were like, uh, no. And I think that it was like that. I like, no, actually, he isn't sweet. Like, I'm living this lie. I'm saying this to myself to make it okay. But he isn't a sweet person. Like, and, that isn't him. And you said that when we were with your family, yes. that I had the look on my face that Juliet had always felt. Like, because I wanted to get away from them because they were repulsive. Yeah, I remember uh, Dev like came to a, a holiday thing. And it was before, you know, we went no contact with both sides of, of our families. But... When I was a kid, I used to call it, and I think I talked about that with Dr. Romney on the podcast you were referencing, but uh, 
what I would call clicking out. And I know this podcast is zoning out, but I would <laughs> actually click out and, and not in a not in a fun way of, uh, of zoning out here, but uh, in terms of numbing myself to what was going on around me. And when I first introduced Dev, like we were at a holiday event and I looked over at Dev's face and he looked he was basically clicking out. Like he looked what I felt like my whole childhood on his face. And I was like, whoa. And again, it was that sort of corroboration, like, oh, because what you were saying, Frank, like it, it is isolating. You've, you've been in essence sort of groomed to think that this is acceptable and normal behavior and you have no tools. I mean, it's it's such a rigged game that you're not ready to play, especially as a child and even as an adult. <laughs> And so you looked like I yeah, thought. I've never told you this, but I actually, I, I want to say this now. One of the things that happened for me was for myself, I felt like being around your family, I was like, these people are going to psychologically damage me. Wow. Like I really felt like these people will find a way into my vulnerabilities and psychologically damage me. And I have to keep away from them from myself as well as for you. And I hadn't been around that because, I, you know, kind of I did a, what they call a geographical. I moved to another country to be away from my family. But I remember being in the room, just looking, going like, yeah, no, I can't. This this is going to damage me. These people are going to get in my head and they're going to mess me up. And you had it that cognizant? like you. I did. Feet, it like... hit me viscerally and intellectually as well. Now, for both of you, how long did it take to untangle all that? Everything's an ongoing process, but it's just like when you finally said, you know what, this is what this is. Like, how long did it take you to like really get that moment for both of you? I... When I met Dev, Dev and I became, the way that we met, we actually met, uh, Dev was doing a, an incredible documentary all about creativity and inspiration and why people do what they do. And he, you sent um, these amazing questions to my manager. And I was like, I've never been asked anything like this. This is really interesting. I'd, I'd love to do this documentary. And we met and we became friends, but we were both in other unhappy, unhealthy relationships, reenacting our upbringing kind of relationships. And so we became friends for like three years, but I started to notice, I was like, Deb, what are, you, what are you doing? He was making these incredible changes in his life. I just kept seeing like you growing and 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 it was unbelievable. And you started telling me about this therapist, Robert, uh, his name was Robert Lorenz. And, and I was like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I should, I should see Robert because it seems like he's really been helping him. And Devin was very, especially I grew up in England and he was very expressive for an Englishman. Like he was he talked about feelings and he was open and, it, you know, <laughs> and that's a part of the culture where it's not that. And Robert gave me two books. He gave me M. Scott Peck's People of the Lie. Like he right away. And I think the first session Annie gave me the fantasy bond. That is also about how you, when you're a kid, you basically can't think that these people can't, aren't capable of loving me. It's too unsafe to think that. You take it in and you think it's all you. So he gave me these two books. And I feel like that for me really started the journey where it was so eye-opening. It was like, oh my God, th this is so me. This is so my experience. Yeah, I think the untangling, it's very interesting. The untangling takes a long time. And it's something, there's a saying, what I rest, my neurosis does press-ups. You know, like, <laughs> right? you know. So just today I was uh, throwing out some uh, magazines that we've done some photography for. And and I was looking at them and I was like, just not good enough. And I was like, whoa, yeah, you did the best you could do. It's still been untangled, but to become functional and to be able to do things, 
I'd say 10, 12 years. I'd say it took, for me, like it was really a, a couple years where it really was like the sort of down and dirty, like, because, you know, it's painful to look at the truth of things, but it's by far so much better than obfuscating it from yourself. But the actual process, there's a lot of mourning because you really go into the mourning of like, I never am going to be a person who is seen and heard and loved by my parents. Like that's just never going to happen. And understanding that and grieving for that experience and then trying to untangle, because that's a perfect word that you use, Frank, what Deb's talking about, that insecurity, that stuff that has been sort of piled onto you and that you've accepted, which there's all kinds of words for it, but basically your false self and, and sort of finding who is your authentic self if you hadn't been suppressed, if you hadn't been scapegoated, if it was okay for you to be yourself and finding that true self and that power in yourself and all of those things and finding joy, like it's okay to be joyful and all of those kinds of things. It's definitely a process. I mean, you know, we talk with people all the time and, and talk about like, we call them false self attacks, where the false self rears its head. And it can happen when things are going terribly and you're stressed, or it can happen conversely when things are going really well and you're actually achieving things that you want to be because we weren't allowed to do that. And that's scary. And you have all this programming that you're always sort of going, oh, that's what that is. Okay. But once you know it, it actually makes a big difference. I think also this business being in an, in the entertainment industry is one of those really strange things because we're all driven to express ourselves, right? right. We're all driven express ourselves but we're also terrified of being rejected we're always living on that razor's edge of the person whoever it is who's in control of the situation going that just wasn't good enough or you're not good enough or you're wrong for me a lot of the stuff i have to get it out of myself it's the way i have to express i have to express something because it's it's too much emotion otherwise what's it like for you oh i never feel good about anything <laughs> I never feel, I can't, I cannot feel good about anything. Anything I do, I am, I'm totally destructive in like my thoughts. Like I have to fight. I, I've learned how to fight through them a lot of the, a lot of the time, but I generally and, will just beat myself up for everything. Like and I what do, you, what do you do to combat? Like, what have you learned that's been, because that's one of the things that's been really interesting is talking to, to people and all of the different experts we've had uh, working with us. We have also Wendy Blanco, who's the head of trauma recovery at Peace Over Violence. We've had Pallavi Darwin, who writes domestic violence policy at the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. But all these people sort of talk about their own experiences with the negative self-talk. And a lot of that does come out of from psychological abuse and different stuff. But so what's been interesting is all the different ways that people work with that. What, what have you found has been helpful for you? With like the same with you guys, it's great to have a partner where it's like, okay, this thought might not necessarily be real. Let me go to an outside party. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is not right, right? My poor wife is like always like my sounding board for everything. It's like, is this good or am I wrong? I always feel like I can't tell what's good, what isn't. I still have, to, I still struggle with it. I'm not going to lie. I still struggle with that every day. And does, if she corroborates and says like, oh, that's a really good idea. Do you believe her? Sometimes. <laughs> it's a, again, it's a process. <laughs> but it definitely helps. It sounds like it yes. helps. If I'm left to my own devices, like the, the negative thoughts will eventually win. Like again, cause it was just like somebody there to just go, no, this is fine. Good. You're good. fine. 
Right. That, that definitely helps. Uh, when I used to go to art class, I loved, I had this teacher who said it takes two people to do a painting, one to paint it and the other one to tell them when to stop. <laughs> That's a great one. You're great with the euphemisms. Like those are amazing. Yeah, but it's it, it's true, isn't it? It's that thing of, I feel like one of the things that I got very empowered from just being around Juliet was seeing her commitment to telling the truth, no matter what. That to me was so brave because the film we made, I'm an anonymous person, but not very many people know me. I don't really have to stand there and take criticism or attacks within the industry or from people who disapprove of her expressing her truth. And that takes courage. But but again, what, why were you compelled to do that, Julia? What we really thought about with the movie was that we wanted to use our experiences, it's entirely scripted meld of fact, fiction, and the fantastical, but even the factual elements are scripted. And so all of our known actors like myself, Gary Oldman, Ron Perlman, Robert Patrick, Lance Henriksen, best-selling author Anne Rice, we all play alter ego versions of ourselves. I felt like the sort of old adage of the more personal, the more universal. And I felt like if we told the story in a very searingly personal way that it would be the best way as a device to provoke a much larger conversation like not it because it's not really about our story it's really about of how prevalent this is and how much this needs to be discussed and how much it isn't in movies it isn't tackled the repercussions how it really gets into your very being this experience and into all of your decision making and your thought process and how it's a cautionary tale of sorts that if you're not aware how you will keep making destructive choices ignoring red flags this for instance Frank, i think the thing that you one of the things the moments i really remember that was why does the person walk down the stairs in the, you know, why do they all separate? Why in, they, in, in a horror movie? Why do they all separate? Why do they all go? Why does the girl walk down the stairs into the you, basement? You go over there and I'll go down yeah. into the dark basement yeah. alone. And it's like because she's fighting inside her head as well. That's what Juliet realized. Like he has a predisposition. And that is the, the destructive choices. And the antagonist understands how to manipulate that to keep her involved in making destructive choices. That, that innate understanding that a narcissistic person has of looking at someone and going, that's their weakness. I'm going to go right for that when I need to. That's one of the things I loved about the film is that how you use tropes, like horror film tropes and iconography to represent very real world things. Like that element, like, yeah, like, why is that? Because the script needs it to usually in those kind of films. But it's like, no, really, like how do we fold that into our, our story and make that representative of a, a real universal truth. And that's one of the things I think the film really excels at. Thank, Thank you. you. Another thing about the film, that opening is a shocker. It grabs you. That's an amazing opening. And the way that opening works, and I think I've said this to you guys before, but I, I loved how that basically works as essentially a Rosetta Stone for the rest of the film. It basically, you place it over every other scene that follows every subsequent scene, that opening scene. It's like, okay, now, now that you understand that, like if you... Like cut that opening scene, it's going to be tough for audiences to understand where you're coming from. But that opening scene basically codifies everything that follows. Yes, yes, absolutely. Was, it was a very interesting session writing that because we would, it, it was not a fun day writing the opening. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but it was also interesting, like putting what you really think about. Like we all have, we all have those thoughts. You right, talked about, about, about intrusive thoughts, yeah. Just like 
I'm just putting them out and getting them out. When we were initially, you know, scripting and crafting the movie, we were, we were talking about the fact that, you know, voiceovers in movies haven't really reflected what goes on in our minds. They don't sound like the the thoughts and the voices and the inner monologue that either of us have experienced. And so we started thinking about like, well, what? where do these voices come from? Where do these thoughts come from? And oh, okay, well, we all make these agreements with our parents. Uh, many I of love are- that term that you've like, yeah. that I use that now in like my life now, because it really gives you like, explains like what that that phenomenon is yeah oh i'm so i'm so glad that 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 has been useful to you and that that you found that and the interesting thing about these agreements that we make is that um many of them are spoken and many of them are tacit and unspoken and communicated we started looking at our own thought process and thinking like all of this negative thinking, you know, how much is this the false self? How much is this real self? Where did this come from? How have we taken these thoughts as the Rosetta Stone, the law that we're living by? These thoughts that are obviously not helpful thoughts because they're all negative. And are we taking these agreements of this information that's been placed upon us and we've made what (laughs) said, yes, okay, I'm taking this on. We started writing that. And then again, again, realizing how much of the thoughts were the same. Like I would script stuff and Deb would script script stuff and then we'd come together and then we'd go apart and we'd come together. And it was like, we had the same thoughts. And that's what we started realizing um, when we first uh, recorded it all. And uh, which, uh, you know, we can tell you a little about the recording session with uh, Harry Groner and Dawn Didowick, who who were brilliant at doing the parents' voices. When we first started working on it, what was wild is we said, oh my God, I wonder if like, this is going to be really embarrassing to we're putting this movie out. We've made it so personal. All of these thoughts, people are going to think we're crazy. I remember when we were mixing, we were actually mixing at the Sony lot and like three of the people that we were working with was like, Oh my God, it's like, you've opened up the inside of my head. We were like, Oh my God, really? And then that's what's happened is so many people said, Oh, I, I have these thoughts all the time. All of the panelists that we've talked to who are, our actors are well-known actors are, you know, incredibly successful panelists. They've all said things like, Oh, that's totally what goes on in my mind. That's what, you know, even today when I was coming to do a panel, I was thinking, I'm not really worthy of this. Why am I, why am I on this panel? You know, you're, I mean, when, when you have Gary Oldman saying that to you, you're like, okay, obviously we, we really do talk very negatively and meanly and derisively to ourselves. And that's the thing we also found. We found a study while we were working on it that even for those that come from the most healthy and stable and loving backgrounds, that 80% of the thoughts in all of our minds are negative. Only 80? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gary Oldman, like getting to him, I mean, did you guys talk about like his first feature film, Nil by Malk, and his upbringing? Yes, and a couple of things. And one other thing I just want to say quickly, because when you brought up the agreements, uh, what I wanted to say also is that those agreements can also be, they they can be in love relationships. They can be, you know, at school uh, with teachers and with peers. And like those seeds can be planted and those agreements are made not only in family. And so I just wanted to mention mention that as well. But yes, Gary, absolutely. Uh, we, we I love Neil by Mouth. It's a great film. It's a tremendous it, film. You never direct it again. I don't understand that. Have you seen Tim Roth's film, The War Zone? Oh, that's a brutal. I can't. I watched, that's a one and done for me. That's I've never a, seen it. It's, it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. But you know, 
I feel that it, it, it was also that was what Julia also reached out to people and talked to them about what she was trying to do. And, and a lot of people trusted us, came on board. And that that was really wonderful. That was wonderful. And the process was very interesting because we would pre-interview them, rewrite something, send it to them, work with them on it. And then what was interesting is, the, you know, that the lady with the red curly hair and the glasses is Charlene Harris who created amazing and david joe from bauhaus and kim newman who wrote anno dracula do you know you do you know kim newman at all he wrote wrote a book called anno dracula and he's a big english film critic yeah and we'd really try to everyone's in the vampire genre everyone who speaks um, in the the scripted interviews and the vampire uh, the find like the vampire as metaphor for narcissists i can't believe nobody made that connection before this movie it's like it's such an obvious thing well yeah. there's so many reasons like you go oh, okay it's a, a vampire is a being that drains all for its own needs much like the narcissist a vampire mesmerizes and often has people in its thrall narcissists are very often exceedingly charismatic you have to invite the vampire in you, you know in our movie we're talking about uh narcissism in the family so you don't invite those people in but then you're primed to invite people of that ilk into your life repeatedly vampires don't change they stay the same narcissists do not change vampires cannot see themselves in a mirror there's no reflection narcissists have zero capacity for self-reflection and we really also are looking at the whole arc, you know, from the consistent, systematic snuffing of spirit, light, and liveliness, all the way to the heinous snuffing of life. What we're really doing is looking at how we so often replay the unwinnable parent or the past trauma in our lives. And we do it over and over and over, hoping that this time we're going to get a different outcome. And we pick bad people, like people that are not going to give us a different outcome. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. If that's all you understand, that's that's all you'll go to. And now a word from our sponsors. I swear, this city gets crazier and crazier every day. Hey, listen. Oh, jeez, we got a live one. Hey, buddy, the English nobleman in my teeth told me something. Hey, if you go to wnuf.bigcartel.com, you get the out there Halloween mega tape and other products. I bet you didn't know that. Did you know that the dust balls in my living room, they're there on purpose? Did you know that? Um, do you, do you want like a dollar or something? <laughs> ah! Did you just throw a cat at me? <laughs> my God, are you okay? I saw everything. Yeah. I think so. I'll tell you one thing, though. I'm not going to rest until I find out more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from WNUF.BigCartel.com. I can tell you that much. Yes, I too would like to learn more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from WNUF.BigCartel.com. Since I came here 15 years ago, girls have been in my head. Walk me through the specifics of the case. Patty, Catherine, Olivia, Hope, Fiona, Veronica, Juliet. You have this way of taking things to the edge. Just leave it alone. But what I need to do is to lend a voice to these lost girls. When you walk with the devil, he won't let you go so easy. Don't shine. 
will rob the spark and punish the innocent because he can't stand whatever he feels about you. Vida, a muerte, muerte, a vida. I'm so tired. Familiar, familiar. Let it out! Now, how did you shoot this film? Was it piecemeal or did you have a, a schedule? Like, was it catch as catch can? So we did most of the film. We shot in a like an eight-week period where we actually worked six-day weeks night. So we were we were vampires. We worked from six <laughs> to six a.m. And we had this incredible line producer named Ashley Friedman, who has since uh, retired. He was before being a line producer, had been the locations manager on all kinds of movies, like The Usual Suspect, all this. So he also helped us find wonderful locations. One of the things that we, a crazy amount of locations, like number of locations. And so some of it we ended up doing at this space that is called the Escarpment, which is in the Meatpacking District. And so part of the reason we worked when we did was because it was quieter for sound at those hours. And so, so we created a lot of our different sets within that building. Uh, what's funny about that building is it's also in quite a number of movies, including The Two Jakes, The Blue Room, where I started the beginning of the film, and then we uh, catch up with it again, like three quarters of the way into the film, and that whole motel and that lobby and all of that stuff is in The Two Jakes, and that room is actually Jackson's office. <laughs> and uh, it looks set dressed very differently, but the bones of it is like, oh my God. And uh, You must have been and- in heaven, Deb, because you've talked about Chinatown a bunch. You love love that movie yes, i love chinatown it's one of my, it's my i put it in my top three favorite movies for sure and it was also what is interesting was shooting like ashley was you need those angels of people that really really get behind the film and he figured out things you can't afford this but you can afford this so one of the things that we had was we had a, a scene in the goth club and it was scheduled to be the end of the night and that was shot somewhere else that was shot downtown la mm-hmm. yes but what happened was we went to a restaurant one night after work. Well, we had actually what happened is we had first had our location that we were shooting the goth club. We lost it. And so then Ashley's like, I found this great other location, but we have a little bit of a problem in that it's like six times the size, which meant that the number of extras we had for our goth club looked really puny in our goth club. We're like, oh my God, now this isn't going to be good. And we don't really have budget to get more people. And what are we going to do? And like, we shoot one corner of it. Like, how are we going to do this? And we went to dinner after shooting and we were trying to figure out what to do. You tell the story, you tell it better than me. No, you're good. (laughs) So we went went to dinner and we're with with one of the investors and across the way from us was this huge table of goths, maybe 40 or 50. No, there were like four of them there, but then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what happened was I said to you, I bet you they like you. Go over and talk to them. And so you went over to talk to them. And- yeah, Deb like nudges me and goes, um, what if you went up to them and asked them if they want to be in their goth club? Because I think they'll be Buffy fans and they might want to do it. And I was like, really? Like, just go over. People are having dinner and be like, hey. That's a come? good hunch to play. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went over. There were four of them there. And Queenie was like, the, was there. And she was, they were all like dressed 
unbelievably made up beautifully. And I went over and I was like, hey, I'm really sorry to interrupt your dinner. I just had to, a favor to ask you. And then they're like, wait, are you Juliet? Do you, did you, are you Drusilla? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am. And, you know, I'm making my, my first feature film and that's my husband over there. And we just lost, like, uh, you know, got a different location and we have a whole goth club scene. And would you guys want to come and be in the club? And they were like, not only will we come, but we'll bring like 40 of our friends. Wasn't that the thing? That's yeah, awesome. And they but, did. But the thing that was funny was, Frank, so they come and they're all dressed amazingly and the costume is super happy because she doesn't have to do anything and she's really excited. And, we, you know, we're talking to them and some of them were like accountants, right? And but they looked, them worked in a morgue. One of them worked in a morgue. On one of them did make up on a corpse. But the one that was accountant halfway through the night goes to us, filmmaking is so boring. <laughs> And we said more boring than doing numbers. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yes. really. Because, you, you know, people don't know, like, you do it, you reset, you do yeah. it, reset, you do it, you reset. But that was and, one of the, the amazing moments that we and had. And you're in a club and there's no music playing and everybody's got to dance. Right, you're all no dancing. Yeah, all that stuff. And we also did do some extra stuff in terms of, aside from our main period of shooting, where we started editing and we were working with Patrick Sheffield, who is a BAFTA-nominated editor, and we had loved his work in the documentary, Tim's Vermeer, and all, all of his work. And so I taught myself to edit and was sort of working to show him kind of, since our, our movie is unconventional in a lot of ways, what I was thinking so that then we could sit down and sort of, he would know rather than me trying to explain in words what I was thinking. But what was amazing is one day we were working and we had we had scheduled we were going to pick up Dev and I went and picked up a lot of the stuff that we shot in Santa Barbara exteriors where it was two of us running around with a camera guerrilla filmmaking really fun like it was totally different than the rest of our shoot which was you know permitted and like all the all the stuff you're supposed you know doing but what was funny is we had this rain sequence written. And then all of a sudden, Patrick and I are editing here at the house and it starts raining. And we're like, Dev, Dev, you want to run outside and like shoot some of the rain and shoot puddles? And and Dev took like, had because one of the cameras we own and Dev took it and he got this amazing footage. He came back in. We literally put it right into the system and like cut it into the timeline. It was such instant gratification. It was amazing. <laughs> Uh, I love how technology has evolved. Like that, 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 that kind of situation can happen now. Like 20 years ago, that's just like, well, I guess we're going to have to get a day, get a rain yeah. machine, get yeah. back. Oh, and it was so funny because I was so happy you were home. And it was like the perfect, like grain. It was everything. And both of us were like, Dev, Dev, are you, can you grab your camera and go out there? And then when he came back with all that Some stuff. Some of my like, favorite moments were shooting in Santa Barbara because it was Juliet and I, we could we could literally go, that street's going to be empty by about two in the morning. Okay, let's go back to the hotel room and lay down for an hour and a half. And we'll go out and film again. And, that, and we were doing that for days and picking up shots. And there's a shot where we zoom in on the mission there. Yeah, pull out. Pull out, pull out from the mission. Dev did it. So and great. it was just wild to just be like just Juliet and I Juliet focus pulling like oh. you know in the folk and you're like oh my god did we get did, it did we get it this is like but that and, was super fun and, it, and we also did something that was kind of it there's all this sort of like 
personal things, obviously, in the film, including we decided that when we were driving on the way, our characters to Santa Barbara, that one of the main roads, like the tree-lined roads, we would actually shoot on the road that where I, the house I grew up in, leads up to that road. And so like, as wow. my character is like making these, basically thinks she's moving forward in her life, she's really driving down the road to her childhood. Wow. And it was the first time I've actually pretty much spent my active adult life never going on that near that street ever. And so it was the first time I had been back on that street. And we were we, it was funny because Deb, we ended up shooting a number of different things, including Deb went like had the camera out the sunroof and I was like holding, the, trying to drive and hold the cam, you know, the base of the camera. You, you, but you, it, it was ended up being like the perfect thing, too, because it's the beginning of sort of the descent this Jules's my alter ego's descent into hell and I'm basically treading the same the same territory unconsciously wow dense movie by the way people who are listening it's a very dense movie but accessible and entertaining entertaining as well as, yes. as you know uh, yes yes it is absolutely uh, acting is hard, uh, requires very inward focus. Directing is the opposite where you have to like, well, how was that for you? Like acting and directing, because that's always like such a tough, like you're trying to, especially when you're trying to focus on the scene and you're trying to focus on yourself, but you also, everybody else needs like to know what's going on. Like that is very, uh, I was it's very daunting. I mean, I ended up loving it because <laughs> Like there was, first of all, it's so incredible. And as, as you know, Frank, like, you know, as an actor, you're a component of something, but having, having an idea and like Dev and I basically were close to where we're sitting right now, where we had an idea. And now it's actually a thing that's been like come to fruition and is burst into the world. And that sort of process where you're the one making all of the creative decisions and is really like nothing else and especially like we were sort of on a mission with this movie and so it felt like the movie was bigger than us and we had to make it which is always a good thing when making an independent film because it takes you so much longer and it's so much harder than you ever think anything's going to be and you're going to live with it way longer and all of those things so you know it helps if it's something you're truly passionate about and there's there's a sort of mission attached to it what I think helped me and because it is such a different thing, like you're so as an actor, you're completely in the, an emotional, open, intuitive, organic kind of state. And then as a director, you need to be in your cerebral, overarching, watching everything and, and all of the pieces coming together in analytic brain as well as obviously the creative elements of, you know, working with actor and all that other stuff, but you, there is that thing. So you're really, and you're kind of going between subjective and objective when you're going back and forth. I think what really helped us, first of all, we did a tremendous amount of pre-production. We had a lookbook that we put together and we gave to every single department. Storyboard we, uh, storyboard, but we also, the storyboarding came out of what we did is we rehearsed with the actors for two weeks and everybody from some, anybody, even if, you know, from one line to like a big part and we had everybody there and we kind of started with just doing sort of exercises and, and we became like a, a team and everyone knew the tone of the film. And so we were, and then we actually ended up 
rehearsing it almost like a play. So we we showed the actors our location scout photos so that they knew and we're like as we were working the scenes, it would be like, oh, well, the door is here and the this is here and the that. So that everyone felt like the actors felt very familiar with the locations before they were even there. And then the, and so then the scenes organically from the acting came out and the blocking and the locations with it as they knew. And so we were um, squared away with that stuff. And then we brought all of the departments in to our last like four, four days of rehearsal where we ran it almost like a play where we went through everything and we talked to each department. We talked with our DP. We did camera and hair tests. Like we did makeup and hair camera tests. We did lighting tests. We showed references of kind of what we wanted the movie to look like because we felt like it should have a kind of dreamlike and beautiful quality in stark contrast to the like kind of raw um, ugliness of, of what do the characters emotionally going through. And so we talked through as we were working through scene by scene with the DP and sort of going, so we're going to shoot from here, here. We walked through everything. And so then everybody knew what they were doing. So when we get to the location every day, we'd then have our walkthrough of like the day's work and we'd, and everyone would be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, we're doing this and this and this. And we'd talk through everything. And then there'd be a certain point where I would go into the makeup chair. And at that moment, I sort of became the actor because I'd rehearsed with the actor. I had enough, everybody knew what they were doing enough that I could kind of be like anyone who has questions now, if they can take, if Dev can answer the questions and sort of let me be the actor that I need to be, especially for like the scenes that were incredibly emotional that were going on in the movie. And so then Dev became kind of the eyes when I was in scenes Although in between takes, I'd work with like, you know, direct the actors if, if it needed any sort of, you know, or I wanted to see how they were feeling about things and whether they wanted another one and that stuff. And then basically in post-production, I, I sort of stepped back into being like, you know, again, uh, the cerebral part in a certain way of, of all of that stuff, you know, editing. Yeah, because that's your stuff is so like emotionally charged. It's exhausting. Does she ever drive home every night? She drives home. I was actually away. Without it, it was. I mean, I have a an like as an actor. I once I'm sort of in a whatever whatever state, whether it's a gleeful state or it's a you know super dark or super emotional or angry or whatever state it's in, I can kind of stay in that well for however long I need to do it. Um, thankfully, it, it wasn't like, you know, with Shelley Duvall on the, on, on uh, the <laughs> where she was kept, you know, in a tolerable amount of time. Uh, you know, I worked with the sound man on, on Edward had worked, uh, worked on that film and said that it was crazy because she was like brilliant in the first take and they ended up using often some of the early takes in it, but they do like hundreds and hundreds of takes of every single scene where she's like so hysterical. So we, at the end of the nights, I would actually, Deb would be really tired, but I think because I was, you know, again, when you're acting and directing, like you actually don't have a moment where you're not engaged. Yeah. So mm. what happens, because for me on a set, it's the hurry up and wait, it's the wait that sometimes is tiring. So if you, yeah. because I let down ever, I was sort of awake and like, and he would sleep and I'd drive home like and, and at 6 a.m. every day and like be driving home. And it was, it wasn't until we, like I was home that I could, you know, I would sort of un unwind and then. It's very hard to sleep. Also the, the weird thing for people listening who haven't made a movie, the weird thing is actually sleeping. <laughs> because you you're keyed of, up, you're keyed up, yeah. And you're wound up. And... That I did though, by yeah. then I, 
yeah. I was tired. But yeah. And but it was weird because we did we don't have blackout drapes, but we did just sleep during the day because yeah. we were sort of exhausted by the, that point. But yeah, you're right. We brought up a couple movies, uh, Chinatown, and you've brought this up on other interviews. And it's uh, the the issue, the conundrum of separating the art for the artist. For me, it's very difficult. I want I know I have these arbitrary rules, I guess, that I've made. Like I don't really watch. I just, I read a really good book. Uh, I think it's called The Last Goodbye. And it's about the making of Chinatown. And I think you'd really love it, Frank. It's, mm. it, it deals with Town, Polanski, Nicholson, and Evans. Because of all the, the four men who, who made the movie. And one of the things that's fascinating is that, I didn't know if you know this, but there was another writer. Robert Town wasn't writing alone. He wrote with a person from USC who was incredibly introverted. Wow and would never go to any of the meetings and, and robert town kept him secret so talk about an artist. no idea about that yeah. jack nicholson actually wrote the end and jack nicholson wrote the end of chinatown jack nicholson wow. wrote the lot right because yeah. they realized it had a different ending but for me when i read that book especially like it goes after chinatown polanski had the incident where he raped a 13 year old girl right he's a monster he is a narcissist he's probably a completely repugnant human being to be around I feel like I don't watch anything after Chinatown. I know it sounds odd. I don't really that's, watch that's, it. That's, that's, that's legit. I like that idea. The thing that's interesting, we end up talking about that with audiences because as people, if they were fans of, of my parents and it's like, you you can separate and say like, I like them as actors. They don't know them as people and say like right. a person, you know, people are complex so they can be horrible human beings, but be talented at what they do. I mean, Norman Mailer stabbed his wife at a party. Uh, people like his books, you know, that doesn't mean he was a well, good Rip person. Torn, uh, Rip Torn gave him the business too, though, eventually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but for me, I mean, there are, like, I I can't watch Woody Allen films. Like, I just can't. So, like, there's, you know, so oh. I, I think each person makes personally what they they are comfortable with doing. And I think there's certain things that you're like, well, that, that you can't condone. <laughs> but for people, it's also okay to be like, I actually think this is a well-crafted piece of art. It doesn't mean that the person who made it isn't a reprehensible person. It's sort of a, being a little bit more mature about things in a weird way, right? Because why should someone you like as an actor be a good person? Why wouldn't right. they be better than anyone? They're just another schmuck on the bus who's like doing the best they can. <laughs> and 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 we're all flawed. And and I but I feel like there's something that happens that is important how do you strike that balance how do you find that in yourself how, and do, you, I, how and do you do it frank how do you um sorry it's tough that. like i chinatown's a tough one for me i'm not gonna lie it's just a tough one and especially since he has my favorite scene in the movie with hey there kitty cat i love that scene that's like a scene i, I always quoted it but it's like well, it's, it's tough also, for me to watch it is yeah. tough because also it's a film that up by the end which is jack nicholson was brilliant because it's what makes it work but Noah Cross gets away with the ultimate evil and he's like enveloping like he's going to abuse the granddaughter like he did the mother and it's sexual abuse which obviously is Polanski like it's very it is it's it, tricky it's, to it's, watch it's that, upsetting. it is is it, it it's also amazing in the film it's so telling about arrogance because there's a point in that movie I think another a director said this well, you watch the movie and every time he could just get in the car and drive away and he wins, but he has to go and confront Noah Cross and he has to say, look how clever I am. I figured this all out. And that's the moment he destroys everything. But it is Never an interesting said. thing that it's a sort of it's a study about evil. And you're talking about a filmmaker who yes. is evil. It goes back to 
they'll Allowed never it. know it's them. They'll never know that they're the ones like narcissistic personalities. Right. He made this incredible, compelling study of evil. But it's like, did you see yourself as evil? No, <laughs> that's some other guy. That's the thing when you see, you know, any of the people that have these traits and that are saying like, it's like, oh, you know, well, this teenager was throwing themselves at me. And you're like, uh, that's not how yeah. that power dynamic is working. Uh, also, you know? I don't know, <laughs> you know, John Houston actually uh, killed someone. Did you know that? In no. a drunk incident. I oh, know. I didn't know that. When he was young. And that's why he disappeared. That's why I think he went to Mexico and joined the Mexican Revolution, actually. And <laughs> like part in that because he ran someone over when he was like 19 years old or well, 20 well he was drunk i mean oh. i mean it's we're all complex flawed humans and i think sometimes we're sold something that someone oh, has to be an amazing person and oh, they're just not they're personally doing their job expressing themselves yeah although i mean i like if someone's a sexual predator they shouldn't it, it shouldn't be like oh they're talented so that's okay it's not okay it's not right, like oh they get to keep making movies and live a life just because like or right. they're famous like that that doesn't matter what really doesn't matter at the end of the day is like are, that you're decent for humans there's actually there's a wonderful thing if you ever get the chance to go at the national portrait gallery in england mm -hmm. they do a tour of the paintings by like uh like i think people volunteer like professors volunteer once a day they come in from two to three and three and they take you through their six favorite paintings we went and, and we got, it was the Caravaggio paintings and it, he showed us like before Caravaggio committed murder and then after and you can really see the amazing in the painting wow it's, it's what it did to his psychology and it's like I think the painting he did after is like Samson or John the Baptist it's like John the Baptist oh. with a hair and you just the violence in the imagery is um, incredible to see before and after and they sit right next to each other it's also interesting yeah. I mean that you also look at like like someone like John Lennon right john lennon writes all you need is love he writes all these amazing he writes imagine he writes all these amazing things but he kind of abandoned his first he wife and first child his horrible father and, and completely cut them out of his life and never saw it. so how does one resolve that you know you don't, don't you don't you don't really maybe you're not meant to resolve it maybe you're meant to just live with it and be like that's just what that is it, what i love about dr romany is that she takes this hard line approach with narcissists it's like there's no curing this this is what this yeah. is there's no reason. It's like maybe there's no like there's no hope. The best thing we could do is awareness. The best thing we could do, I think, at this point, because I, I I believe that, too. It's like, well, a lot of narcissist behavior is a trauma response. It's like, yeah, you know, it also is a trauma response going to therapy. No, I a million percent agree with that. You know, we encourage people that have experienced this to find a therapist that understands that because otherwise you're going to a therapist it's like, well, maybe if you try this, maybe if you try that. And the, the truth with with these types of personality disorders is that, and of course there's degrees, right? Like you're going in narcissism and then in psychopathy, right. but even still the, these traits, there is no cure. There is no change. There is. And if somebody presents like they're, they, because they try to for a little bit, just to sort of get what they want, it, it immediately reverts. It's really just, they're, they're incapable of it. In my experience, it's like you could see that there's just, it's just like talking to a wall. Were you ever at that point with your parents trying to like break through? I think for me, I spent my, too much of my life that I gave my time engaging uh, there. And it wasn't until I realized that for me, not having any contact was the best answer. It was like, okay, if people are toxic, again, the vampire thing, like I don't have to subjugate myself and be drained continually. 
I can actually choose not to do that anymore and to not give myself and my time and my life away. I can fill it with love and I can fill it with positive things. But I think I spent a long time and really before I met Deb, like I just feel like I walked around with an entire hole in the middle of myself of need, this abyss of pain and need and and love me, love me, love me, that was never going to be met. As, as Deb always hears another one of his, as you called them, euphemisms, um, he always says, you don't go to the hardware store for milk. You have to go to the market. And so I went for years to my family for milk and I was not going to get milk there. I did have to go to the grocery store and not the hardware store. I'd also say, Frank, to me, one of the big things, it kind of goes back to the previous question that we have to live in in an ambiguous place where you go, we are brought up that you can resolve, you can make it better, you can achieve love. There will be, when my father died, I sat with him as he died and I couldn't tell him I loved him as he, as he, as he was dying because I didn't love him and I didn't, I didn't really know him anymore. And I didn't, I just sort of wanted it over and I wanted to get on with my life and get back to Juliet. And I think for people to live with well, that is. It would have been a lie. For it would have been a complete lie. Because actually, you know, I feel like that. And him saying he loved you, like that was not loving. He was just behavior. terrified. He was just terrified he was going to go to hell or something. That was his real fear. And I feel like we have to learn. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't work out great. It's actually it ends the way it ends. You live the way you live. You die the way you die. It's one of the things we bonded with uh, Dr. Romani right away about because she sort of calls it forgiveness bullshit. And the thing about it is, look, if whatever helps people, truly, there's not one way for anything. So whatever is helpful to people is great. And like for us, it was no contact. And that doesn't mean, look, some people are married to someone, I mean, have children with them. And whether they're still married or not, they do have to have contact with them. Or some people don't want choose with a family member. They do want to stay in contact. Whatever works for every person is is fine. And we it's just that, you know, we should be able to talk about not seeing family, not dealing with family if they're toxic without being told, how dare you, which society tends to do. And they tend to gaslight you again. And you should be able to say, hey, you know what? Our lives really bloomed when we stopped doing this, when we stopped engaging. But Dr. Romney talks about that, that idea that like, and, and if it works for some people, great. In in my opinion, like forgiveness, I think certain things are unforgivable. I think if you rape a child, it's unforgivable. I don't think that it's about forgiveness. I think it's about coming to peace, not with that other person, but in your own self with what's happened and how you move on from it in a positive way. And I feel like it's a peace is important, like a, a, a sort of sense of reality but I don't think that's about forgiveness necessarily. And, and that doesn't mean that as a result, like you're, I'm not, some people say, oh, you're walking around really angry. Like I actually don't feel like I walk around angry. I feel like if I was made to feel like I have to forgive something that I feel like I isn't forgivable, then, then I might be angry. I don't know. I, I feel one of the things also though, Frank, I have to say is that being around Juliet is that Juliet really has a powerful ability to just look at reality in the eye and just live there and be like, that is what that is. It doesn't matter what we, you know, that is just what it is. And I feel like I have that to some degree, but Juliet will really live there and just be like, 
you know, sometimes we'll be dealing with someone on a business deal and she'd be like, it's this and when it's going to be this and it's just going to be that's what it's going to. And now <laughs> I've learned to respect that. It's very freeing because once you actually really accept that the person didn't love you, they didn't really care about you. you my, one of the things when Juliet was talking about Robert, Robert was probably one of the most important people in my life, Robert Lorenz, that I ever met. And there was a guy that introduced me to Robert. His name was Jeffrey Yates. And I was telling him I was married before and he said something to me and he goes, yeah, and there's a million people lined up after you. <laughs> and I went, wow. got it, got it. You're Not right. But once I move on, the next person steps in. And that was so important to me. And you need a host. They need a host. Yeah. They need a host. Yeah, they do. And what that's interesting is they will keep trying with a person when they when a narcissist sees that you really are done, they will move on. Like that. Move on. I mean, even if you're like, you're the one and you're the they'll be like, boom, next. What yeah. once they know you had there's that no up, didn't you when you were leaving the Kapal car park? Yeah, yeah. She had a boom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is sort of like done. Okay, there's no attraction there. I gotta go somewhere else for that. Yeah, I can't get what you need. Like, you know, they're drug, they're drug of yeah. like, you know, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> But I think Dev, Dev has an ability. Now we're doing what you said we did on the screen. <laughs> Go for it. He, he does have an ability. Like I, I was, because I tend to still, it's funny. I was raised with this where the words weren't what the words meant, right? I was like, all the, but I still sometimes listen to words and Dev is like, no, that's what's going Like you can cut to the chase sometimes quickly. Like it takes some, although sometimes I do quickly. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you not find that as you get healthier, you have one of the things that someone told me about, but I really agree with is that you discover things about yourself the more you get rid of this awful stuff that was in your head that was that was really taking up a lot of real estate. And, you you know, we both learned to cook and we both love cooking. I never cooked before because my literally 90 percent of my mind was taken up trying to deal with or justify and honestly, really honestly to justify people. Your Q&A sessions, which I've sat in on one of them, is are amazing because you two are really selfless in them. Like you really just give the floor to all these, you know, these strangers. I mean, well, they're, I mean, they're fans and stuff. And but you give it to them to like tell their stories. And some of them, I got to tell you, I was so mad for a couple people where I'm like, listen, just give me an address and we could do a strangers on the train thing. I'll take care of it. <laughs> it's yeah. just like Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, it's the thing that's been incredible is watching. So we have people, all of the audience members that have named themselves the A Place Among the Deadheads, like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and they uh, come to every single screening event and they've flown into festivals. And then, Frank, it was amazing to have you there at the last one. I think you're going to come to the next one. Yes, I will. Yes, absolutely. But we've seen so many people changing their lives and that saying that the movie has really informed that and we have had such an outpouring of people sharing their experiences and getting to know everybody and seeing what what they've been doing and our latest like unbelievable success story is there's a young gal and we keep everyone's anonymity um so i won't say her name but she has got now she just turned 18 and she's gotten out of a, an abusive horrible narcissistic parental situation and she's got her she's living actually with a friend the mother was a teacher totally understands that type of behavior they've just gotten an apartment that they're getting together she's like gotten a job like it's so exciting it's so rewarding and, and we we actually helped like along the way with her and we've been like really encouraging her to get away from from that house and and so it's just 
amazing. So today we got that that like update. You know when you, oh, that's great. Also, I suppose the thing is you can't make something like it's so hard to do it independently that you've got to make something about something because you've got to you got you know you want to have a conversation with people. I have to also say we get so much from the people who see the film that we talk to. We get to share their lives. Because it's community and it's about building a bridge to like hopefully do something, a little something to to help the situation. Well, it's it's what what you were saying also, Frank, about it being so isolating is you know um, uh, another one of our place among the deadheads. Her parents, she uh, not only got a job that she loves when they basically told her she couldn't do anything, she's gotten promoted three times. She's gotten into therapy. Her therapist totally gets narcissistic abuse. The, the work that they're doing is, is really incredible. It's really rewarding to see the journey of people making, making their lives better. And also, look, the truth is when you come from this, you are told you are nothing and that the person who is you are serving is everything. And they're so much better than you. And you're just nothing. You don't mean anything. And so part of that conversation is, but right, that's, that's, but that's the journey, right? Because that's the voice in the head that's stopping you. And that voice, there's a great line that I love from a book I read where someone said, how did your parents know what buttons to push? Because they put them there. <laughs> wow. But, but that feeling that you're saying, I think where you rally around, you hear the stories and you're like, that is not okay. And you like you want to say, tell me where that is. And I want to go to that address. I mean, that's the thing is also to have a community of people that are, see it, hear it and say like that. No, that's not okay. Because as we were all talking about, when, when you're subjected to this and also the sort of, you know, in love relationships where like your people groom people and that line is, or when you're raised where you've never had a line, but that line continually gets crossed to a level that you don't even know. And, and you're behaving in ways that you may not have imagined you would behave prior to have other people go like, no, no, you know, yeah. you're good. Like that's, that's what's happening to you. Isn't right. No one should talk to you like that. No one should say that ever to you. That's not okay. <laughs> Woo! <laughs>